The three great Christian virtues are faith, hope, and love. And if Paul was the apostle of faith and Peter was the apostle of hope, then John was the apostle of love. John loved Jesus and John loved people. John was the only one of the 12 disciples who was spared a martyr's death. But it wasn't because the Roman emperor didn't try. Domitian ordered John to be turned into a French fry. He had him boiled in oil. Miraculously, though, the Lord delivered John. And since Domitian couldn't kill him, he was banished to Patmos, a rocky island off the coast of Turkey from where John received the revelation. After Domitian's death, John was freed. And he ended his years pastoring the church at Ephesus. As it turned out, God had preserved John for a very important job. A dangerous heresy was spreading. And God knew that a man of John's stature would be needed to squelch it. The evil doctrine of Gnosticism had raised its ugly head. And John writes this letter to stop it in its tracks. Chapter 1, verse 1 begins... That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Here John refers to Jesus as the word of life or the logos of life. You see, the Greeks observed the order in the symmetry they found in nature and they deduced that there had to be a cause behind the cosmos. Greek philosophers coined a term for this unknown force, the word or the logos. And here John shocks his readers by reporting that he has seen the logos. He and the disciples had handled it, had heard it, had even hugged it. What the Greeks thought of as an impersonal force, John knew as a personal friend. You know, Farmer's Insurance has a commercial. A spokesman says, hey, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. And this is what John is going to say in this letter. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. John, he had handled the logos. He had touched and hugged the logos. He had discovered the reason behind all reality. And it was not an it. It was a he. His name is Jesus. And John writes this letter so that we too can know him and we can experience the joy and love that's found in Jesus. Verse 2, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The meaning of life on earth and the purpose of For all eternity is no secret. The Logos has been revealed. The Apostle John met him and spent three and a half years by his side. And his intent in writing this letter is so that we too can experience a relationship with Jesus. For he says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you an important question. It's a multiple choice question. Which is most important? Here are your possible answers. 
Number one, to get to heaven. Number two, to serve God. Number three, to do God's will. And number four, to know God's more. Which of those choices would you say is the most important thing in life? First, it's certainly important to get to heaven. No doubt about that. But what about until then? And after you're there, what will you do? Second, we all want to serve God, but all work and no rest sets a person up on a path to burnout. Third, certainly life goes better if you're in the will of God. But once you're in his will, what then? That's why the correct answer is to know God more. This is why John writes that we might have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Hey, I'm glad I'm going to heaven. Don't misunderstand. And I love serving the Lord. And I desire with all my heart to walk in his will. But the ultimate purpose of my life and your life is to know God. Ultimate fulfillment comes from knowing the God who created me. As John puts it in verse 4, In these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is why if your life is full of frustration or disappointment this morning, chances are you've forgotten this truth. You're looking for love in all the wrong places. God's chief purpose for us is in a location, heaven, not a vocation, a means of service, not a situation, his will for us. No, Jesus died so that we could fellowship with Almighty God, and its byproduct is fullness of joy. Verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is a person, but he has characteristics similar to the properties of light. Light invigorates and illuminates. Light warms us. Light drives away the darkness. Light produces color and beauty. God is not like the light of the moon, a reflected light. God is like the light of the sun, a radiant light. He's the source for all love and all purity and all truth and all beauty. He doesn't just abide by the standard. God sets the standard. God is light. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, here's how we grow as Christians. We walk in his light. Plants grow by a process called photosynthesis. A plant has cells that absorb light and then transform that light into energy, the energy that it needs to process food and to grow. And Christians also grow by a spiritual photosynthesis. Our spirits absorb God's light. The presence of Jesus in my life causes me to become more godly and good and loving and pure and kind, more Christ-like. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 explains this process. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, 
just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Living in God's presence has a mirror effect. The more I hang out with God, the more he rubs off on me. Remember, it's not up to a plant to grow. The light causes it to grow. And it's not up to the Christian to grow himself. Our job is to stay in the light. And it's the light of Christ that fuels a steady and perpetual growth. See, Christians need to be sort of spiritual bugs. That's what you need to be, a spiritual bug. Look at the porch light on a hot summer evening. And watch the moths and the bugs hover around that light. We need to be like spiritual bugs and live in the light of God. Growing in Christ is like a spiritual tan. Some of you sport a nice tan in the summertime. And a tan requires very little effort. Find a nice spot on the beach. Roll out your towel. Do the rotisserie turn every few minutes. Before long, you're baked and beautiful. All it took was time and exposure. And this is how we grow in Christ. Just spend daily time in the presence of Jesus and the God beams. His glory, if you will, rubs off on you. His light is absorbed into your makeup and into your disposition. Live in the presence of Jesus and his blood continually cleanses us from our sins. But verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And here's what hinders the light of God from having its effect on us. Dishonesty. Hide your sin. Cover it up. Act self-righteous. Think you've arrived. Refuse to be honest with where you're at in such self-deception. Acts like a 45 sunblock. It just shuts out the light. There's no such thing as sinless perfection. No matter how mature you become in your faith, as long as we inhabit these sin-stained bodies and live in a sin-infested world, at times we're all going to sin. As Christians, we are people who sin less and less, but none of us become sinless. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins... Rather than cover up our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Once a Catholic priest heard the confessional of an older lady who was hard of hearing. She shouted her sin so loud that everybody in the church could hear the priest suggested that next time she just write her sins down and sort of hand him the list. Well, the next week, the lady entered the confessional booth and she gave the priest her list. He looked at it and he said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but this is your grocery list. She shouted, oh dear, I left my sins at Publix. <laughs> well, we really can leave our sins with Jesus if we fess up. If we get honest, we're told that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's been said, the only sin that God won't forgive is an unconfessed sin. Whenever we sin, we need to immediately ask for God to forgive us and cleanse us, which prompts a question. 
If the moment we're saved, God forgives all our sins, past sins, present sins, even future sins, why do we need to still confess them? And here's the answer. Our confession maintains a repentant attitude. As far as God is concerned, our forgiveness is assured by the blood of Jesus, but our repentance is nurtured by often and honest and humble confession. Confession keeps our heart in the right posture. Well, chapter 2 tells us, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Don't ever think, oh, since God promises to forgive me, I can go out and sin. No. John is assuring us of God's forgiveness so we won't sin. His forgiveness should make us thankful. Always remember, sin is not so much the breaking of the laws of God as it is the breaking of the heart of God. That's why if you and I really love God, we'll want to please Him. But if anyone does commit sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, 1 John was written so that we would not sin. But if we do, we have an advocate. The word means attorney, one who pleads our case. Meet Jesus Christ Esquire. Jesus is our attorney in the court of God. Now on the other side of the court, on the other side of the courtroom... There sits Satan. Revelation 12 verse 10 refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. The Greek term devil means slanderer. Satan is the prosecutor who wants to condemn you. And understand, Satan has mounds and mounds of incriminating evidence. You've been supplying it over the years. He's got videotapes of your private sins. He's got recordings of hateful statements you've made. He has surveillance of your evil thoughts. But just when Satan approaches the bench to present his evidence, our attorney, Jesus Christ, jumps up and objects. He declares the evidence inadmissible. Why? He's already paid its penalty. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, our sin is totally forgiven and forgotten. Verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Hey, the word translated propitiation, it's a long, fancy word, but it simply means place of mercy. It's the Hebrew equivalent of the word kippureth, which in the Old Testament is translated mercy seat. You see, the mercy seat was the gold lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was on this lid that the priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice to stave off God's judgment. Over the mercy seat hovered God's glory. Under the mercy seat sat the two tablets of the law. His glory was the concentration of his love. The two tablets declared his righteous law. And between the demands of the law and the love of God set this blood-stained mercy seat. It was here at the mercy seat, the propitiation, that God's kindness and God's justice came together through the blood of the sacrificed lamb. 
In the Old Testament, the mercy seat was the one place on earth that you could go and be assured that your sins would be forgiven and you would obtain the mercies of God. And here, John declares a new and radical truth that God's mercy seat is no longer a lid, it's the Lord. Jesus himself has now become our blood-stained mercy seat. He's our propitiation, our place of mercy. In Christ, the law and the love of God have made peace. Jesus is the one place on earth where all peoples, as John puts it, the whole world can obtain mercy from God. If you've sinned, come to Jesus and find mercy. Verse 3, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin penned the immortal words, nothing is certain but death and taxes. But John would disagree with that. For a relationship with Jesus is also a certainty that we can count on. The word know, K-N-O-W, appears 39 times in 1 John. He writes, so that we'll know that we know God. When the Christian scientist and statesman Michael Faraday was dying, a journalist came to his deathbed and asked him the question, Mr. Faraday, would you care to comment on your speculations on the afterlife? Faraday answered, speculations? I know nothing of speculations. I'm resting on certainties. I know my Redeemer lives, and because He lives, I will live also. Well, in the next nine verses, John wants us to know that we know. So he provides a Christian's self-test kit. Did you know there was one? There's a self-test kit to prove you're a Christian. You know, when a woman wants to know for certain whether she's pregnant or not, she purchases a self-test kit. And likewise, if you're wondering if you're really a Christian, John provides us a test kit that lets us know for certain. And the Christian self-test kit is twofold. First, verses 3 through 6, do you keep God's commandments? And second, verses 7 through 11, do you love your brother? John says in verse 4, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Understand, it's impossible to know God and not be profoundly influenced by him. You know, there are charismatic people in our lives who have an effect on us, but nothing has the impact that God has on a life. If you're not enchanted by God's love and intrigued by God's profound wisdom and desirous of God's kindness and longing for God's character, if you don't want to follow God and become more like Him, friend, then John says there's only one explanation. You've never really met Him. Verse 5, But whoever keeps His word Truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk 
just as he walked. The person who loves God will keep his word and walk as Jesus did. And then verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Now remember the law of Moses, Leviticus 19 verse 18, taught the Hebrews to love. It declared, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus put a new spin on this command. He even loved his enemies. Jesus loved unconditionally with no strings attached. Jesus loved lavishly in a way that gripped the sinner's heart and pulled him back to God. Jesus-style love turns love one another into a whole new command. And John writes again, a new command I write to you, which thing is true in him, in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. If the God of love lives in you, how can you harbor hatred in your heart? He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The love of God, the light of God, shines the rays of God's love into a man's heart. Hey, I'm a son of the South. I was born and bred in the heart of Dixie. And much of the white community at the time justified racial prejudice and white privilege, even in the church. Sadly, I grew up with hatred in my heart toward people with a different pigment in their skin. But when Jesus Christ became my Lord, he filled my life with his love. Filled it so full that there was no longer any room for the hatred I'd once harbored. Instantly, my attitude changed. I had a love for people regardless of their race. You know, some Christians have dramatic testimonies. They speak of instant deliverance from alcohol or drugs or or a vile temper. I was instantly delivered from bigotry. And this week, like everyone I know, I've been horrified to watch that video of George Floyd's arrest. It seemed to be an example, a a clear example of white-on-black police brutality. Hard to get around it. And it angered me. I'm sure it angered you. Why does this kind of injustice have to occur again and again and again in our society? Racism is an evil we work hard to eradicate, and yet it hangs on. And I wonder what's left for us to do. Equality is now the law of the land. Institutions are integrated. Atlanta has had a black mayor for 47 years. Minneapolis, where George Flood was tortured by police, has a black police chief. Their department has had mandatory racial bias training since 2015. Our society today fires and shames people who use racist language. We now punish racist motives. 46 states have hate crime laws. 
I think tearing up our cities and hurting innocent people is counterproductive. But whatever is left to do peacefully, let's do it by all means. I'm just asking what's left. I'm no sociologist. I'm just a pastor. And it seems to me the problem isn't as much a skin problem as it is a sin problem. People don't know God. They don't know the God who created us all, every one of us, in His image. Or they say they know Him and really don't. And until they do, they live in darkness rather than light, John tells us. Only the power of Jesus can change a bigoted heart. And that alone will put an end to racism. Let me challenge you to take John's test. If you don't keep God's commandments or if you don't love your brother, you don't know God despite what you say. For verse 11 is clear. He who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And just knowing I'm a Christian doesn't mean that I'm growing as a Christian. For this becomes the theme of the next verses, verses 12 through 14. Here's a passage that helps us measure our growth. It depicts three stages of spiritual maturity. You know, if you go to a family reunion, you would expect to see some older folks, some adolescents, and some kids. A healthy family would have representatives at all three stages. And the same is true in the family of God. When we gather as a church for our weekly family reunion, and hopefully you'll, if you're not gathering with us yet, you'll be gathering with us soon. We should be able to find people among us who represent all three levels of spiritual growth. Some little children, some young men, some fathers or spiritual parents. Here John identifies the various characteristics of each stage. And as we go through these verses, I hope you'll try to pick out where you're at this morning and where you need to be headed in your spiritual growth and development. John's song has two stanzas, and he reveals tidbits in each stanza. Let's just read it all, and then we'll break it down. Beginning in verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, first, John mentions the little children, or the new believers. And he says two things about them. They're still relishing the thrill of God's forgiveness and... They now know God as their father. They're learning. They can take their needs to their heavenly father. You know, little children, they're both age-wise and spiritual children, are full of enthusiasm. But they're vulnerable and they're naive. They need to grow up and develop maturity. And so there's a second stage to spiritual growth. 
There's young men or spiritual adolescents. And John says two things about them. They have a hunger for God's word. In other words, they feed on it daily. And with it, they do spiritual battle with the devil and they overcome. A spiritual adolescent is strong in the word and wants to fight the battles. And yet they're adolescents. Sometimes the hubris and naivety of youth can make them divisive. They assume they know more than those in authority. They think they can do better. Mark Twain once said, when I was 16, I thought my dad was the biggest fool on earth. When I turned 21, I was amazed at what the old man had learned in five years. Here's hope for the adolescent. Given time and patience, he'll grow. He'll learn to appreciate his elders. And that's who John mentions next, the fathers or the spiritual parents. And he writes only one statement about the fathers, but he says it twice for emphasis. He says, because they have known him who is from the beginning. Spiritual kids are enthralled with God's imminence, that we can call God Father, that he's nigh to us. But the spiritual parents are captivated by God's transcendence that he's high over us. Unlike kids and teens, the adults seek God not only for what he can do, but for who he is. Hey, a father is a man who stopped living for himself and now lives for his family. And likewise, spiritual dads go to church not to get, but to give. Their priority is not how they can be blessed, but how they can bless others. Each of us is at one of these three stages. Are you a little child? Are you a young man or a young woman? Or are you a spiritual parent? Wherever you're at, I hope you're moving forward. And then verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Sadly, the world system, its attitudes and values and motives are diametrically opposed to God. And here's what makes the world go round. John sums up the world in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and write this down. What is the lust of the flesh? It's the desire to feel great. And the lust of the eyes, what is that? That's the desire to look great and the pride of life or the desire to be great is not of the Father, but is of the world. Here's the world system in a nutshell, feeling great and looking great and being great. Here's another way to think of the worldwide web, if you will. The lust of the flesh is to live for physical pleasure rather than spiritual fulfillment. The lust of the eyes fixates on external appearance rather than internal beauty. And the pride of life seeks to make a mark on the here and now, on the temporal rather than the eternal. The lust of the flesh, that's a vicious trap. Folks live for the high, the buzz, the escape but they become its slave. Addiction is the steep price lust will cost you. 
The lust of the eyes is just as tragic. Hey, image isn't everything. Celebrities today get by on smoke and mirrors rather than grooming their inner character. And the pride of life lives as if the here and now is all there is. It denies the other world waiting where we'll be held accountable for how we lived in this one. One day the real living will begin. The biggest need for some people is to see an eternity in their future. And John is wanting you and me to come out of the world. Real satisfaction doesn't come by gratifying physical desires, but it comes from a spiritual relationship we can have with God. Real beauty isn't about attractive exteriors, but about reflecting God's glory. And real meaning isn't found in temporal pursuits, but in a life that counts for eternity. John writes in verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. This world is passing away. After a time in prison, Charles Dutton became a successful Broadway actor. When asked how he transitioned from prison to plays, he explained, Unlike the other inmates, I never decorated my cell. Dutton believed his prison cell was a temporary situation. And he refused to let himself get comfortable. And this needs to be our attitude This world is passing away, John says, and we are just passing through. Rather than get comfortable in this world, rather than get caught up in worldliness, let's seek godliness. For little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. The Antichrist is this ominous future rebel John warns us about in the book of Revelation. We'll study it, study him when we get there. He pairs his claws after the church has been raptured and he leads a global revolt against God. But he has many predecessors, predecessors John says. In Matthew 24, Jesus predicted one of the signs of the last days would be a proliferation of teachers who are anti-God and anti-Christ. And John saw the rise of this deception in his day. It has only escalated since. And John speaks of these false teachers. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Some false teachers start out in sound biblical ground. Yet they want to move beyond that. They wander from truth to entertain folks or inflate their ego. Hey, teaching the Bible is like shooting a bow and arrow. Say your target is 100 yards away. If your aim is a fraction off, you can miss that target by 10 yards. And the same is true spiritually. Just a little error in a foundational doctrine can produce enormous deviation later on. Verse 20, But you have been an anointing from the Holy One, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Here's the believer's safeguard against spiritual deception. 
the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, the anointing of olive oil was a symbol of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And to each of us, God's Spirit has been given to teach us and to instruct us. Jesus promised in John 16, verse 13, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. The Spirit is our spiritual watchdog. He sniffs out the lies and the deceptions, get off course, and He recalibrates us back onto the right path. He says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Now earlier I mentioned that God had preserved John to combat a dangerous heresy known as Gnosticism. And its central feature was its denial of Jesus as Savior. We're going to learn more about the Gnostics in the coming weeks. But no, they concocted fanciful tales and theories to support their ideas. They were wrong, but they sounded so good. And here John tells his readers not to get suckered. He says, you know the truth. God's Word and God's Spirit agree that Jesus is God. So don't cave in to the lies. If a man denies the Son of God, he has denied God the Father. And then verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, don't be swayed by these nouveau, avant-garde religions. Don't look for new truth. Rather, hold on to the truths that you've heard and you've learned in Jesus. He says, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. The words of Jesus alone give eternal life. And remember, eternal life is not just longevity of life. It's a special quality of life. Jesus puts his spirit in you. He lives out his love and joy and power through you. Jesus' smile shows up on your face. His laugh is heard in your voice. His compassion flows through your hands. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins the moment you give your whole heart to Jesus. And then verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Now John had confidence in the abilities of the Holy Spirit to help him discern truth from error and grow in his knowledge of the Word of God. See, God could have set up one church or one headquarters as the official arbitrator of divine truth, but that's not what God did. Rather than entrust the interpretation of His Word to an institution or to a priest or to a special pastor somewhere, God gave to each of us His Spirit. 
God's truth is conveyed through a personal anointing available to all believers. Look at the church down through the centuries. It's been saved from heresy time and time again. The truth has been safeguarded, not by the faithfulness of one sect or of a single religious order of a particular denomination. No, whenever orthodoxy is threatened, the Holy Spirit stirs up a revival that corrects the problem and brings back truth into focus. When the message gets distorted, the author himself restores the true interpretation in the hearts and through the hearts of his followers. If you ever hear someone say, you can't understand the Bible without reading their literature, beware. He or she is a cultist. John says that all a Christian needs to grasp the Word of God is the Spirit of God. You know, good Bible teachers can be helpful, but they can also be wrong. God doesn't want Christians to put their trust in any human teacher, but in the Holy Spirit. This is why the Father puts His anointing in each of our hearts. Pick up your Bible. I hope you do. I hope you allow God's Spirit to speak to you personally. That's what God wants. Don't just read through the grid of what you've been taught by someone else. Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart afresh. He is our teacher. And then verse 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Jesus is coming back soon, and we need to be ready to meet him. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. You know, sons look look like dads. You know that? Sons look like dads, and and dads look like grandsons. You know how that works. And those born of God practice his righteousness. If you're born of God, you'll look like him. You'll reflect his righteous ways. How do you know that you know God? Well, do you keep his commands and do you love your brother? Jesus is coming and he's going to test us all. Let's self-test while we can. Father, we thank you.